Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So here we are. It's a somber day. A sad day. Sad day? A solemn day. Solemn day. A prayerful day. Ooh. Are you feeling prayerful, Susan? The saddest, solemnest, most prayerful of days. (laughs) (laughs) I have deepest reverence for the Constitution. I I am in awe of the Constitution Mm. right now and the capital F framers. And I swear I will discharge my solemn oath to this podcast today. Which which oath was that? (laughs) (laughs) We better make one up now. (laughs) We're we're not going to check that solemn box without an oath, people. (laughs) Can I hold you to it? Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the sad, somber, and solemn edition. (laughs) I am... You actually want a sober discussion? I am prayerful, Shane Harris. I'm very glad if you're tuning in for the first time. It's like this every week. (laughs) We never laugh on this podcast. (laughs) You know, someone said, I think maybe it was John Meacham or Doris Kearns Goodwinner, I don't know, some other popular historian, that this is a moment that should be historic and somber and yet feels neither historic nor somber nor solemn. And I kind of felt that way watching the impeachment proceedings today. I guess maybe people tuning in for the first time wouldn't, but there's something about it that's like, yeah, we've seen the ending of the movie already, and this feels like a little too ritualistic and pro forma. That said, I think you have to step back and sort of think about its place in history, because sure, right now, uh, it doesn't feel especially somber or serious. That said, I actually think it is a hopeful and important and historic day, because This is the day that the House of Representatives proclaims that what Donald Trump has done is impeachable conduct. And that is, frankly, one of the first serious boundaries we have seen placed on this bizarre, expansive, you know, destructive presidency. And so while it doesn't feel like any of those things right now, I actually think with a little bit of perspective, it will feel more important and not less. And that's why I do think people have to sort of, members who are voting have to like keep an eye on history, keep an eye on the future, because there is something larger about what's happening than kind of the individual political moment. Okay. Well, that's that's a good argument. Yeah. We'll get into it. <laughs> Solemnly. I'm here in the jungle Prayerfully. studio. Prayerfully. With, that was Susan Hennessy, Tamara Goffman Wittes, and Ben Wittes is joining us remotely. Should we even say from where he Miami? Is? Ugh, I was gonna make up something. Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, nothing's wrong with Fargo, but it's just like not Miami. Now you're gonna get in trouble. God, now all the Fargo people are gonna tweet at me. Yeah, all people in Fargo tweet at Shane. Oh my god, your feelings about people who make fun of Fargo. <laughs> I love Fargo. Love it. Wait, 
Why are we talking about Fargo? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're here though now. Let's Christ. just let's on the lean podcast into it. this week. <laughs> the House <laughs> impeaches Donald Trump. I should say, as we're recording this, they have not actually impeached him. Yeah, by the time you hear this, they likely will have so. They're, they're Bar- debating. They're deba- they, they have to persuade each other. Right. You never know what's going to happen. Right. Barring some dramatic and unforeseen event, which will make this podcast conversation seem hilarious. Uh, by the time you hear this, the House probably will have impeached President Trump. What we're going to talk about, especially today, is what will a Senate trial look like? Uh, former U.S. officials helped the United Arab Emirates build a domestic surveillance system, and a federal judge rebukes the FBI for its surveillance of a Trump campaign advisor. Um, Susan, let's pick up just where you left off there with the, the, the nature of what we're seeing today. I mean, it is, I think you're right, worth reflecting on both that in history this may look very different. But but in the moment, it does feel like this is sort of – this is preordained. Um, and I wonder you know, if you have any thoughts on – if people are you know, tuning into this for the first time right now, is this, do we expect this to really change anyone's minds or if we all kind of just assume that everyone is where they are and that this is – that even the Senate trial perhaps might not make all that big of a difference in persuading people? So I don't know that it changes people's minds. I do think that it will alter people's perceptions and I would sort of contrast it with – the Russia investigation and the rhetoric sort of immediately following the Mueller report and the talk of sort of the constitutional violations and, and the grave abuses of office we were seeing, and then nothing, right? And no sort of move towards, no serious move towards impeachment. And and now when we hear people talk about what happened and what Mueller found, it is through that lens of, well, did you people really mean what you said about how bad it was? Obviously, you didn't because you didn't impeach the guy. And I do think that that there was a consequence of it sort of fading away because there wasn't the sort of affirmation. And so I do think one message, and I don't think it's the wrong one, is okay, you really meant it when you said that this was gravely concerning abusive conduct that impeachment was the appropriate remedy. You know, whether polls are with you or against you, you know, individual members who are in sort of vulnerable districts coming out and saying that they are going – they are in fact going to support impeachment, some Democrats defecting from the party entirely. Um, you know, I do think the message to the American public is this is a really big deal. What happened was a really, really big deal and we need to grapple with it. And so I, I do think that it sort of marks it in that way. Now, this hypothetical person who's been living in a cave and tuning in for the first time right now. Like, I don't really know that I have enough of a profile. But I think whenever we think about, like, the big highlight takeaways that people, you know, walk away from this with, that the president got impeached for it is going to be the biggest and most significant one. And, you know, you you put your finger on something there, too. And I should, like, probably give up the ghost when it comes to this idea of, you know, it's a fairly journalistic question. You know, if you were tuning into this for the first time, nobody's tuning into this for the first time, right? But, but Ben, I mean, it strikes me that if if nothing else, I mean, and there was a, actually a really good Associated Press piece about this yesterday, you know, 
Donald Trump is about to join a notorious club with only three members in the American presidency and past presidents have talked about impeachment as a stain on one's legacy and for as much as he is you know, tweeting through this, although the press secretary today said that he would be working most of the afternoon, which is clearly – maybe he's multitasking. Obviously, this gets to him. I mean we saw this in this just – I don't know what other word there is for it, unhinged six-page letter that he sent to Nancy Pelosi last night, just scathing, uh, I think really projecting and revealing the degree to which he understands that what is about to happen to him uh, is not something he would have wished for and I think feels profoundly that is maybe thinks it's unfair, but he knows that this is going to be a black mark on his presidency. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, it's pretty easy to tell that it bothers him just by the amount of punctuation and capital letters in his tweets today, uh, which has been extreme even by his standards. But also, why wouldn't it get to him? I mean, being impeached, as you say, is a very rare thing in American history. It puts you in the company of two of the greatest villains in the history of the presidency. And one, Bill Clinton, who is, you know, a complicated figure who uh, has some redeeming qualities and certainly some, some significant policy successes and retained some popularity, but was decidedly not known for his rectitude or the propriety of his conduct, either with respect to uh, women or with respect to the judicial system, the two uh, relevant subjects to his impeachment. And so I, you know, it definitely does not put you in good company. Moreover, from a legacy standpoint, you know, if, if you want to go down in history as a good, a fine, or a great president, being impeached is not sort of part of the agenda. And then from a purely electoral standpoint, you know, going into your final year in your first term in office with 42 or 43 percent approval ratings and the need to face a, a Senate trial is not, you know, tactically or strategically heading into an election what you would want to do. And so there is, you know, uh, there, there is no side of this, whatever they may say, that is attractive. There is the I suppose the saving grace from Trump's point of view is that there has been no evident erosion in his support among those who support him. And, uh, you know, you could make a case that it does not materially affect in a negative sense his reelection prospects, although you could also make a case in the other direction. And so I don't, I don't think there's an argument that this is something like that he should be without anxiety about. I think it's a genuine black mark on his presidency and it forces him to spend his time defending himself rather than spend his time talking about the good economy or the things that the, you know, that he would want to boast about, like his successful Supreme Court nominations or, you know, the other things that he's managed to get done that are from his point of view positive selling points. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a good place for me to pick up because we've said many times on this podcast sort of discussed the tension between the sort of legal or procedural or constitutional dimension of impeachment and the political dimension of impeachment and that fundamentally 
this is not only a political process, but it's playing out in a highly politicized way and that that is inescapable, which means that the impact of the impeachment that is going to begin today is going to be felt in electoral outcomes next fall. And so, you know, I think Ben's point is that the fact of impeachment itself challenges the president's reelection messaging. And I think that we've also discussed on past episodes the way in which it's been challenging for Democrats to sustain a clear message about impeachment and what it says about the president. And I think in many ways, you know, the fact of impeachment itself really helps the Democrats in that back and forth messaging battle because, number one, the articles of impeachment themselves are a very strong, simple, short, clear narrative. But number two, it gives them all a common text from which to work from. And that's evident in the debate that's taking place today, whereas the Republicans are now the ones who are speaking different Republican elected officials or party figures or the president himself lashing out in six different directions in their arguments against impeachment or their arguments in defense of the president. Some are saying he didn't do anything wrong. You know, there was no quid pro quo. Some are saying there was a quid pro quo, but there's nothing wrong with it. Some are saying this is a, an extra constitutional coup, right? And some are saying, well, it's bad, but it's not at an impeachable level, right? So I think what's happened, what we're seeing beginning with the president's rambling six-page letter um, and extending into the Republicans who are speaking on the floor today is we're seeing a very scattershot counter narrative in contrast to a very clear, streamlined democratic narrative. And so as we think about the political battle going forward, I think that, you know, it is relatively easier for the Democrats right now and relatively harder for the Republicans. I, I think Tammy is right. What I would add is the way to understand that the political ramifications and context are temporary. The constitutional ramifications and context are more enduring. And over time, especially as the political consequences diminish because he doesn't win re-election or enough time passes, um, those will harden in a way that I, I think has more um, important ramifications for the office than just kind of the, the narrative back and forth that I think Tammy is accurately describing about where we are politically. So let's talk about what the next phase is going to look like. We're going to have a Senate trial. It'll probably pick up in the new year um, after everyone has come back from their holidays. So there's going to be now a break period, right? I mean, there's going to be sort of a kind of a rest, if you will. But Ben, you've written some about what this is likely to look like and how it will play out. Mitch McConnell has already signaled, I think, some pretty important aspects insofar as he doesn't envision either side calling witnesses. Um, I think partly that's because he would prefer not to get into an issue where John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and others are going to have to come testify. But what do you think we should expect, you know, even if just sort of at a, at a high level or even a structural level of what this trial is going to look like? And do you think it's going to be in keeping with what, you know, either the historical or frankly, even the constitutional expectation of an impeachment trial is? All right. So, to answer that question, you need three variables, two of which we don't know and one of which we do. One is you need to know what the default rules are, like what happens if we just go off of the script that the rules program? And the answer to that question is there is a set of rules 
it's kind of old and it's kind of vague on certain key points and it leaves a great deal to the will of 51 members, however the constellation of those members come together. So in other words, if you want to know if a given witness is going to be able to show up, you got to know whether there are 51 votes to prevent it or not. But the default rule is, you know, uh, the impeachment managers get to call their witnesses, the president's defenders, they get to call their witnesses. Second thing you need to know to know how it's going to go is what happens if the parties can agree on stuff? And the answer is anything they can agree on can happen under these rules because they can get together if they have enough of them and just waive the rules. And that's what happened during the Clinton trial, which is the Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans got together. They agreed upon a set of procedures. They let it rip. And that essentially replaced the default rules. So if you can imagine Schumer and McConnell putting their heads together and coming up with either a partial or a full trial plan, I think it's much easier to imagine a partial trial plan than a full one. Anything they agree to can happen. And then the third thing, which I alluded to earlier, but in some ways the most important, is for all things that they can't agree on, who does and who does not have 51 votes? And that puts enormous weight on the views on procedural matters of the four or five Republicans that we actually imagine could side with Democrats on procedural things, as well as the views of the Chief Justice, which we really don't have any sense of who would be the tie-breaking vote in the event that there were a 50-50 tie. And so without knowing the answers to, we know the answers to one of those three questions, without knowing, having a good sense of the answer to two of those questions, it's really hard to know how that this is gonna go. That said, I will say that we have a couple of windows into what some of the answers to these questions is. And my colleague, Molly Reynolds, or our colleague, Molly Reynolds made this uh, point yesterday in a Brookings event, and I think it's very sharp. If Mitch McConnell knew he had 51 votes to throw this thing out right away, he would not be talking the way he's talking. He'd be saying what he was saying during the Merrick Garland thing. You know, we're not going to have a vote on Merrick Garland. No way. We're not just not going to do it. And he would be saying something like, you know, we're going to resolve this on a motion to dismiss. And the reason he's not talking that way is presumably that he actually doesn't have the votes to do it. And the question is, how many votes does he not have and for what purposes? And without like sitting down with all the members with a, you know, with a polygraph, it would be, it's really hard to figure out where the vulnerabilities are. So I think probably the answer is nobody knows what, who's, who can count to 51 on which issues. And that makes a lot of uncertainty as to what a trial is actually going to look like. I think one sort of significant unknown that, that Ben mentioned that bears sort of foot stomping is the uncertainty surrounding the role John Roberts believes he's going to play in this process. So Dahlia Lithwick at Slate has a really interesting piece up this morning about the ways in which uh, Roberts might or might not sort of step up into this moment. So we've had Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham 
come out pretty forcefully and say, we do not intend to be impartial jurors. We're coordinating hand in glove with the White House, um, really doing things that um, objectively undermine the appearance of legitimacy here. Um, And so the question is, whether or not if uh, Roberts perceives real questions about legitimacy and real questions about legitimacy in that space in which the Senate cannot agree for itself, how exactly he will view his role in terms of procedural interpretation, in terms of sort of stepping in. Um, I do think that's a pretty substantial unknown. You know, My guess is that um, Roberts would love to uh, – do nothing and sort of sit there like a potted plant. And um, uh, that would be the ideal scenario for him, or rather the ideal scenario would be to get a time machine and have none of this ever happen so he doesn't have to deal with it at all. You know, that said, I I do think it's plausible that as we see Republican members sort of push the precipice of, of the legitimacy issues here, he might be a little bit more reactive to that and a little more inclined to take very, very conservative traditional views of the procedural issues here. It also strikes me, and somebody disabused me of this if you think that I'm wrong or, you know, agree with me if you think I'm right. Insofar as the House Intelligence Committee proceedings and the Judiciary Committee proceedings, more of the judiciary, frankly, were a, really a partisan brawl and, and quite, quite predictable in some respects, taking out the testimony from witnesses, which was frequently compelling and added new information and nuance and understanding to the core allegations and the story around what the president did with Ukraine. It, it, it was a slugfest and I get the feeling that the trial – Partly because it's in the Senate, partly because it is a trial, there is sort of you know to come back to the word you know solemnity about it that it might be that the that the at least that this sort of partisan temperature of it is going to go down a bit, and I wonder if that might cause observers you know not the you know person in the cave people have been watching this to view it differently or if it might at the very least just sort of lend a bit more legitimacy to the entire process which you know whether you think it's legitimate or not has been marred by a lot of Republicans saying it's not, and probably many of their supporters believing that it's not. I I feel like there are two factors that are in tension in trying to answer, you know, how that might play out, Shane. Because on the one hand, you know, you're right. Unlike a committee hearing, you don't have a five minute rule. Um, people are going to be speaking uh, in the Senate trial for a long time, and they're not going to be responding immediately to one another, especially if there are no witnesses called. So this is just a long argument by one side followed by a long argument by the other side. On the other hand, you have the, the fact that this is all going to be on playing out on live TV and that for both sides, the political messaging that they get out of this is more important than the process itself. And so that is going to lead them to look for, you know, the clip, the the 30-second clip, the soundbite, the catchphrase. And that could get very nasty, you know. Just think about how viral certain moments have gone when an individual member of Congress has shouted from the floor and interrupted a president speaking in the well of Congress, right? So I think there's potential for that kind of circus just for the sake of the video that you can use in your advertising. I can imagine a Johnny Cochran moment. No quid pro quo. You got to let him go. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to wear the glove? Very good. You like that? Yeah. Lindsey Graham can have that one. Can can I just say, though, I think, Shane, your point is, is correct, or at least potentially correct. The senators 
actually have to sit down and shut up during this process. They're not allowed to speak. And that means the entirety of the discussion is going to be going on between Democratic House managers who actually want to bring out evidence and the president's lawyers who will be presumably behaving like counsel rather than uh, screaming partisans, although that may be a, a hasty assumption on, on one or both of those sides. But I do think you have the opportunity here for uh, a more dignified proceeding. And also, I do think the presence of the chief justice may be a little bit disciplining in terms of you know, people's willingness to really clown around. That may be optimistic, but I, you know, one would hope that that would be a restraining force. Because our court is just full of decorum. You know, Chief Justice Rehnquist wore stripes on his robe as a shout out to HMS Pinafore. But he did that at the Supreme Court as well. Right. So, but I mean, I think John Roberts now needs to one-up this, and so he should come dressed as Grizabella from Cats. <laughs> With whiskers. Yeah. Done. I mean, it's very timely. <laughs> you know, by then he might have seen the movie. All right. Let's move on to uh, let's move on to sunnier environs where shady things are happening. Oh, nice Ew. one. It's a little painful. Yeah. Um, so we have talked on the podcast before about this just incredible reporting that Reuters has done regarding uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, and a surveillance capability that it has been building primarily with the assistance of former U.S. intelligence officials. They're out with a news story now about the role played by White House veterans in helping the the Gulf monarchy build a secret surveillance system and state, really. Tammy, what has Reuters found? And let's get into some of the, the details and the players who will probably be pretty familiar to people who've listened to this podcast. Yeah. So Reuters' first report on this Emirati hacking capability and not just surveillance, but right. hacking. That's right. Was published almost a year ago, last January. And over the course of the year, they've continued to dig into the story. They've gotten more documents. They've done more interviews. And, you know, they had another big story over the summer. And then um, this one that came out last week. And I think that this latest piece, and it's a long one, and I really commend it to folks. Um, brings two new pieces to the table. One is, as you said, Shane, the way in which former senior White House officials with you know lucrative defense and security consulting companies in Washington were able to get business in the UAE with the blessing of the American government, get the export licenses and contracting licenses they needed to have these NSA-trained hackers go and build this capability for the Emiratis. And how that USG blessing on this project was sustained without scrutiny, even as the project itself morphed and became something quite ugly. In fact, one of the uh, senior former U.S. government officials involved in this said later, I have felt revulsion reading what ultimately happened to his own project, right? And that, so that's the first piece that this story adds. The second piece the story adds is chapter and verse on what this, what this hacking did, who the targets were, and what the consequences were. And this is the part that's really, really chilling, which is that 
after the U.S. Uh, contractors um, who originally uh, this contract came through Dick Clark, the former counterterrorism czar for President Clinton and briefly for President Bush, he left the government in 2003. He started a consulting company called Good Harbor and working with a partner of his, another former administration official named Paul Kurtz. They went to the UAE. You know, this is in the years after 9-11. We're building our counterterrorism partnerships and got this contract to help the Emiratis build a capability that they were going to use against Islamic extremists. And Reuters, you know, in the documents that it's reporting on this in the story, it even relates one particular incident uh, in 2010 or so in which the, it seems as though this unit that was built by Good Harbor for the Emiratis actually helped to prevent a terrorist attack. So it's not without value, but it it became something much uh, more abusive. First, because the Emiratis, it turned out that the American contractors were supposed to be training, the Emiratis didn't have the capability to carry out hacking attacks on their own. And so even though U.S. workers under the terms of the license given by the government were not supposed to be directly involved in the hacking, they ended up doing it for their Emirati clients. And those Americans who were involved thought they had the blessing of the United States because we're all friends and we're helping build Emirati counterterrorism capability. Then the Emiratis, after the Arab Spring, started to expand the scope of targets and the scope of activity. And there was no additional scrutiny or oversight given by the U.S. government to the license they had granted for this project. So the Emiratis started hacking the Qatari government. They started hacking FIFA, the soccer association, because they wanted to prove Qatari corruption there. They hacked the U.N., They hacked a German NGO. Um, They hacked an Emirati dissident who was then arrested and says he was tortured and forced to sign a confession. They hacked a Saudi women's driving activist who was living in the UAE, and she ended up getting rendered by the Emiratis back to Saudi Arabia, where she was tortured and is still in prison and on trial on treason charges. Um, So we get through this writer's story... uh, a really granular look at the way in which the United States in the wake of 9-11 was willing to provide or, or put on offer to security partners capabilities that it then could not control. And at the end of the story, there is a really striking quote from former congressman and former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers of Michigan, saying, you know what, we really, we Congress really needs to consider just ending the ability of American companies to do this kind of foreign intelligence contracting because the abuses here were so severe. You know, I think some of it is a very Washington story, defense contracting, revolving door, et cetera. But some of this is just truly chilling and awful. And there's no way to escape the culpability of the American government for allowing this to happen. Susan, you're going to, just as a question to you as well, too, because, I mean, this is, you know, pick on you as the former NSA official in the room, right? But, you know, Dick Clark, 
uh, and his partners obviously have a you know a very well known reputation for doing a lot of work in the United States. It strikes me in reading this, which is this kind of amazing zoom in look at one company and the work that they did. They are certainly not unique in this respect. I mean, you could probably go all around the Gulf and frankly to a lot of other countries as well where former officials are lending this kind of expertise to other countries. That always seemed to me just sort of inevitable insofar as those companies were going to look for business in the United States and that market would become saturated and they would naturally go over to other countries that had no indigenous expertise or very little and help build it for them. Yeah, they they certainly aren't unique. They also aren't naive. And so a little bit of the story here that, well, this began sort of as a good faith counterterrorism thing and then it morphed over time and we don't understand how we wound up here. Um, I'm willing to kind of buy that for like the individual, um, you know, former NSA employees who then go to work for what they think is a U.S., uh, you know, defense contracting firm, and then you know it's a it's a foreign government client, but there's a relationship that that kind of mission creep when you're um, when you're at a really granular level, you know, it doesn't mean that there that there weren't real warning signs in, in this story, and notably, um, a lot of people did leave, so clearly the warning signs were received. Um, but the idea that people at the top, people like Dick. Clark um, didn't know that this was a serious risk. People like the Clark, especially who have had decades of experience in those regions with the officials that they are going to work for. They know these people. Right. So the idea that people are saying, well, like, it's like it's revolting and I just like I cannot. How did this possibly happen? It's a little bit like, uh, what did you think was going to happen? And this was something lots and lots of people warned about for long periods of time and so and came up within the U.S. government relationships, right? And so the idea that like the failure here is of government oversight, like there are lots of failure and, and, and sort of process problems here. Um, the core problem is like nobody should have been doing this work in the first place. Uh, Dick Clark should have known better. A lot of people who worked with him should have known better. And and a little bit, um, I noticed how many times this article noted like the post 9-11 environment, right? Yeah. Sort of invoking this moment in which it was all hands on deck. We're talking about like 2008 to 2010 <laughs> here, folks. All right. So like, like I, I, was, I was struck by, by how strongly they were sort of relying on attempting to invoke, you know, th- this environment in which well, you know, maybe the equities get balanced a little bit different than they do now. Um, you know, the big I, I agree with Tammy. It's a, it's a really chilling story. Um, the big question is, what does this mean moving forward? And how exactly do you even begin to get your arms around a problem like this? And something like an outright ban on working for foreign governments, that's, that's really tricky. You are going to lose sort of you are going to lose some productive cooperation. It's also going to result in in sort of the shell game of outsourcing, right? So you can put particular sort of constraints on U.S. corporate entities. It becomes more and more difficult. Like you actually can't – I don't know that you could legally ban a U.S. citizen holds a security clearance from ever working for a foreign government again, right? These – like you could imagine very narrowly tailored sort of restrictions and reporting requirements and basically putting onerous obligations that make it just kind of not worth it. But this is a really, really difficult question about like what exactly we're going to do about all of this now. And 
that's really hard when you don't live in a world in which there's a clear list of good guys and there's a clear list of bad guys. And as long as you steer clear of doing business with the bad guys, you're in sort of safe waters. That's no good harbor jokes, puns intended. Um, that's, that's just not the environment in which we live in. And so I, I, it's, it's a huge problem how Congress will even begin to get its arms around this. Like, I, I, can't, I don't even know where they would begin. Yeah, I also think that, you know, the obvious retort on the policy side would be, well, if the U.S. government doesn't allow American companies to do this, the Emiratis will just get this from Chinese companies or from Israeli companies or, you know, others who will have even fewer scruples and less oversight and less concern with the American interests. So it's better for us to do it because then at least we have visibility. You know, that's that's always the argument that gets made whenever we have a debate about export controls that are security related, even if it has nothing to do with, you know, high tech or computers, even if we're just talking about selling tear gas canisters. That's the same debate. They'll just buy it from somewhere else. And so, like, I recognize the complexity and our shutting it down does not mean that the Emiratis aren't going to get the capability. Um, but I do think here, you know, one of the one of the things to ask, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, um, but, you know, do these this Emirati dissident, this Saudi imprisoned Saudi woman, do they or their families now have uh, the ability to file suit against American entities because of their involvement in their torture? You know, in other words, are there other risks that we're taking on besides the risk of helping to develop capabilities in other governments that they then abuse? Ben, actually, Tammy just makes a point to make a question for you. I mean, if we're talking about it seems there's a pretty clear need or at least there would be a desire on the part of U.S. officials to try and restrict bad things from happening with technology that our companies and our experts are developing. I mean, it might just become too risky for the United States. It's rep the reputational risk now of being associated with surveillance in the UAE, much oh, like it's already been. Honey, nobody cares about oh. reputational <laughs> risk these days. What are you <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so naive. <laughs> Dick Clark is laughing over his dumb Perignon right now. He probably doesn't drink that. But Ben, like, what do you think? I mean, is, is there? I mean, is there? A, 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 do you think there's something to this idea, or is it? Is it? Is it just this is the market, and and, and you know, and, and the government is not going to be able to effectively decide, you know, which countries sort of meet the threshold of bad actor to the point that we'd say to an American, you know, executive or former U.S. official, sorry, but you can't do business there. Yeah, so I, I don't think reputational risk is a big factor here because if person X won't do it, there's some person Y who can perform a similar service. And these are small companies too. I mean, Good Harbor is not Google. Exactly. And, you know, the ultimate expression of that is the old Black Manafort and Stone firm, right? Which was not doing surveillance tech but was doing lobbying, and their idea was, we'll work for anybody. That worked out well. Yeah, well, it, no, actually it did. I mean, when that firm made a lot of until money, it and it did, its people didn't go to jail until they did other things. But So I think realistically it's not reputational risk that's going to restrain this market. It might be litigation risk in the sense that, you know, it should be, a matter of 
cons litigation concern if you are a U.S. tech company providing surveillance technologies to uh, entities, uh, government entities that are known to torture people, I would think you would have uh, some concern about liability when those technologies are actually used to abuse people who then have standing to bring a claim against you. And I would think if that is not providing some disincentive to do that sort of thing, that actually suggests that there are maybe causes of action that Congress should consider creating that that have not yet been created. And I'm like, I'm, I have not studied this question, but it's not obvious to me why the fear of that wouldn't induce a certain, uh, you know, fear of liability wouldn't induce a certain caution about this sort of thing. Now, I'm sure there are jurisdictional barriers, given that a lot of this stuff is taking place overseas. But I do think, you know, if you're you know, a U.S. company that is doing this, gee, I, I would think that somebody would have uh, a, a, an interesting set of claims to bring against you. And if not, that strikes me as a failure of the litigation environment. All right. Well, speaking of surveillance, let's uh, in our third segment here talk a little bit about uh, good old surveillance at home. Some good old-fashioned surveillance abuses in the United States. The best kind of the rule of law-bound intelligence gathering. Um, the chief judge on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court this week issued an extraordinary public – I guess it's a public order is what we would call it, yes, um, yep. for the lawyers in the room um, – rebuking the FBI and the Justice Department, really I think specifically the Bureau actually, in relation to what the Inspector General of the DOJ found in his review of the FISA warrant against Carter Page, which we talked about in a previous uh, episode. Susan, the judge, I mean, re relying just on the, I mean, some of the, 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 the um, sort of more headline grabbing, you know, aspects of the Inspector General's report raised a question that we were all asking last week when we read those findings, which was, does this signal that there is some kind of systemic or broader problem with the way that the FBI uh, applies for and obtains these warrants to conduct electronic surveillance on U.S. persons? Um, just to briefly recap, I mean, some of the highlights of the Carter Page problem, uh, the FBI leaving out exculpatory information that might have, you know, argued for not authorizing the warrant. Um, we saw actually from Horowitz today, there was a question about whether or not the subsequent authorizations even should have occurred because it didn't appear that the government was getting all that much useful information from the warrant on Carter Page. The judge has given the FBI until January 10th to come up with some kind of system for how it's going to correct this. That seems like right around the corner. Just talk a little bit about the extraordinary nature of the judge rebuking them. And does this signal that if the FBI doesn't change its ways, that the FISA court is going to say, forget it, we're not authorizing these warrants? Yeah, so, you know, look, it, um, it is uh, an unusual thing to see a public order um, uh, from the FISC. I, I wouldn't say it's the, the angriest or, or an unprecedented order. The, the FISC has gotten angry in the past, including um, post-2000 when the initial sort of problems that led to the creation of the Woods procedures came out. And so, you know, like there's um, there's a complicated and at times sort of adversarial relationship in which when the court feels that it hasn't been provided with enough information, they get really angry. The IG report is 
a really, really complicated document um, overall, and also when you sort of just try and isolate the Carter page elements of it. Um, and there's a lot of different layers to it. And so I think if we're talking about the process and what happened and, and how we should think about it now, there needs to be sort of an understanding of the purpose here. So um, you're never going to have a situation in which the FBI walks into the court and dumps a full investigative file on the on the table of the judge and says, you know, all right, like sort through it. We think there's probable cause in there. And here's like here's a 10 inch thick file underneath it. And here's everything we know. And, uh, you know, you you figure it out or here's our argument for how you should figure it out. We're going to give you everything. Um, that's that's never going to happen. So at one end of the spectrum, there is sort of the final application to the court, the the document that the court approves or doesn't approve and usually does approve. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, way back at the beginning, is this big, thick, undifferentiated file of all kinds of information that might be relevant in some way, might be true or false, uh, you know, to, to sort of this question. And then there's sort of this, this process of how the information in that file trickles up to the court. So first it goes kind of from the case agent and they're giving information to the FBI lawyers. And the FBI lawyers, they're, they're having a back and forth sort of conversation about, all right, like what's relevant here? How much do we need? Is it enough to go uh, to DOJ to, to request this, this order? Once the FBI attorneys think that they have enough to sort of justify requesting a FISA, then they give some subset of that information that they deem to be relevant to the OI attorneys. There's a back and forth. OI is the, the Department of Justice Office of Intelligence attorneys. There's a back and forth, you know, clarification. Or is there other information? This is relevant. This isn't relevant. And then the OI lawyers um, insert their own set of sort of judgments on, on, okay, what is relevant? What is necessary? Is this sufficient? You know, are we providing the court with all the information they need? What information do we not want to provide the court? And then they give it to the court and the court decides whether or not the information there supports a finding of probable cause that a person is an agent of a foreign power or otherwise enumerated under the statute. And so the issue here is really... Um, at what point is the exercise of discretion appropriate? And I think the way to understand the failures we saw here, including some very serious ones, is that it essentially amounts in most of these cases, and I'll isolate a few that are, are more serious aside, that what we have is individuals exercising discretion that somebody else should have been doing, right? So you have FBI agents deciding that something's not relevant, but that wasn't really their call to make. It was OI's call to make, and it was at least OI's call to make as to whether or not not the court needed it or not, right? Or you had you had FBI lawyers making determinations that I think in some cases being careless and sloppy and then falsifying records after the fact to sort of back up their, their assessment. Very, very serious misconduct and wrongdoing. So on one hand, it's sort of, it's understandable. You can isolate all the various problems. You could think about kind of the small tweaks that could help, you know, sort of fine tune the process. And you can see how, well, you know, there's almost all of these don't appear to be, to be done in bad faith, at least not to to me. And so, you know, maybe there's just a handful of issues here. Or you can step back and say, this is a non-adversarial process. And the entire integrity of the court depends on actually relevant information being in front of them. And if they don't have the relevant information because the FBI or DOJ did not give it to them, whatever the reason is, can we really have faith in sort of the integrity of that process? And so that's why I think that this – the critical question here is going to be what Horowitz finds in terms of whether or not these are systemic problems. Now, surely there are going to be other omissions in other contexts, the, the relevance of which will be debatable. But the question is how broad 
And how many instances of very clear, relevant omissions? And I would identify a handful of what Horowitz identified of these 17 as being very clear, relevant omissions, and how much sort of fall into this discretionary gray area. Um, That's just a more difficult question. Ben, what do you expect? Well, maybe you don't have any expectations of Horowitz's next review, but as I think you've said before, this this is going to have a long tail. This is something that is going to speak to how the FISA process works, I think, going forward. Yeah. So first of all, I, I largely agree with Susan. And I think the, you know, having now spent some time with the report, uh, I do think the FISA stuff is significantly worse than I expected it to be, to be honest, and that the Bureau uh, has a big problem here. And so a couple of things in that regard. The first is that, you know, this process needs to be pristine. Now, pristine does not mean that there's never a mistake because it's a complex human system complex human systems fail eventually 100% of the time, right? And so the proper standard is not, can you ever find a mistake in a FISA application? That said, you should be able to say with confidence in a process that's working right, that if we take the highest stakes case where the institution has the most reason to get things right, that if you do a after-action proctological exam on the conduct of the investigation, you're not going to find out anything horrifying. And that's exactly what happened here. And what we learned was pretty horrifying. So not only is it multiple errors, as Susan points out, some of which are much more material and significant than others. But even if we just focus on the ones that are significant, there's a bunch of them. And we also have some pretty blatant apparent misconduct, up to and including an apparent falsification of a document by a lawyer. And so it makes you wonder two things. One is, well, was this a politically motivated effort to get Donald Trump? Now, interestingly, there seems to be no evidence of that. And that raises what, from my point of view, is perhaps a more troubling question, which is, is this the routine way of doing business? And for those of us who've been defending the FISA process over a long period of time, that is a really scary possibility. So I, I do think, I, I agree with Susan that a huge amount turns on what this subsequent audit that Horowitz means to do of the FISA pro- process comes out looking like. If it comes out and it says, well, look, you know, we looked at 3,000 FISA applications and we noticed you know, a bunch of errors uh, and uh, the Carter Page example was actually something of an outlier and the process is, you know, pretty good with some mistakes and here are some recommendations for how to improve the process. You will feel very differently about this process than if the thing comes out and says, we looked at 
3,000 FISA applications, and there is pervasive systemic problems in the quality of the information the court is being provided, that would raise a really important integrity question about whether the court is getting the sort of information it needs in order to evaluate these probable cause judgments fairly. And so I, I think all we can say right now is that this example is, is really bad. It really does warrant the deeper look that the inspector general wants to do. And it has almost nothing to do with the criticisms that and anxieties that the right-wing fever swamp has been raising about the FBI's conduct of this investigation, save that some of the specific criticisms, i.e. that the Carter Page FISA had problems and that the FBI over-relied on information from Chris Steele and was insufficiently skeptical of it, is clearly borne out by the report. You know, I have to say, the more time I spend with the IG report, the less I agree with Ben's characterization right there. So so hearing Ben say it was horrifying, right, and that these are this report really gives reason to un, to sort of question the fundamental integrity of this process. I think it's possible to hold in our minds two ideas simultaneously and, and to say that this report validates two ideas simultaneously. One or, or three ideas, really. One, there were serious process issues that should not have happened, uh, warrant further inspection, should not be minimized, and must be remediated moving forward. And if they cannot be remediated, they actually do undermine the overall legitimacy of the court. Two, even if every single one of Horowitz's uh, omissions had in fact been included, and I, I actually don't agree with his characterization that all 17 reflect uh, material omissions, the court w- would have still determined that there was probable cause on Carter Page. Um, I, I've really tried to sort of red team this idea, right, because, you know, the benefit of the doubt really should go to, to Carter Page in this in this circumstances. The idea that there was not a probable cause, there was not probable cause to support the idea that, that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power or, or basically wittingly, um, you know, because they did the Part E exception, uh, you know, uh, wittingly assisting someone who was an agent of a foreign power. Um, there was probable cause, right? And, and remember, we're talking about an investigative step here. We're not talking about sending Carter Page to jail. We're not talking about a reasonable doubt. We're talking about a probable cause to believe this is true and a need to investigate it. So, Okay, so that's, you know, the question of sort of the the substantive rights violation, I think, is a little bit gotten lost in in all of this. Three, for years, we've been told that this is a this is like a rubber stamp process. And no one really, you know, the, the, the bureau just gets whatever it wants and DOJ just passes along the bureau's request. That's not what this report shows. This report shows an a very, very skeptical OI. This report shows uh, a DOJ that is very concerned with prudential considerations, that decides not to go for a FISA on George Papadopoulos, that agonizes over this question of at what point is there enough to support probable cause on Carter Page, that seeks to be over-inclusive, that interrogates sort of the, the FBI's representations. Now, that's not to minimize the, the the fact that the Woods procedures are not sufficient to ensure that the answers are, are valid. But still, that is 
that's rather contrary to sort of the the perception that has been offered by by lots and lots of critics of this program. I think it actually does a very it shows a, a very serious and and searching uh, process. The the final thing is that there is one area in which there's Carter Page's rights were very very clearly violated to me. His civil liberties were violated, and that's when his name was leaked, right? The idea that you get a warrant, a probable cause warrant, and you investigate somebody, that is not ruinous of the person. That is not an accusation. It's an important investigative tool. The point at which this all goes sideways and becomes deeply unfair is the moment in which Carter Page, it is known publicly that Carter Page was the subject of a FISA, leading to all kinds of speculation about, well, obviously, then he's an agent of a foreign power and the government must have this evidence against him. You know, that's the moment to me in which there are there are real questions about that piece of the process, because that's the one clearly, clearly identifiable abuse from my perspective. All right. Let's move on to... Lessons of abuse, objects of abuse, no object lessons. <laughs> I have an object of abuse. You actually do. <laughs> you do. <clears throat> I'm looking at it right Which now. Which one of you wants to be abused with this object? Oh, my. <laughs> it's a lot more ominous whenever you see her holding it. <laughs> is that what this club is about? Uh, what's your object, Cammy? I would like to present or at least show off to you guys, and Ben has already seen it, so his remoteness does not interfere today. I would like to show off my golden hammer. I, like Thor, have been proven worthy to join the Order of the Golden Hammer. The Order of the Golden Hammer is a creation of Natsec Girl Squad, headed by one Maggie Feldman Pilch. They had their second annual annual conference last week, and I believe the Lawfare podcast even had a live taping. We did indeed. Um, which you all should listen to. Natsec Girl Squad is an amazing membership organization for women who are um, entering into and moving up in the field of national security, both in government and out. And I am truly, truly honored to have been inducted by uh, the women of Natsec Girl Squad by popular acclamation. All right. Like they actually voted to let me join the Order of the Golden Hammer because they said, I build while I climb which I certainly do try to do. But what I'm really going to try to do now that they gave me this awesome golden hammer is I'm going to use it to smash the patriarchy. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) So you can go to the show webpage and see my awesome golden hammer. And thank you, Natsec Girl Squad. Love you gals. Congratulations. It suits you. Yeah. Thank you. Matches my eyes, right? (laughs) When you smash the patriarchy with that hammer, don't scratch the golden paint on it, though. You, you know, you're saying it's golden paint. I think it's gold. It solid looks like gold. a solid gold <laughs> hammer to me. Just saying. The All honor right. is in the admission. You might melt the hammer down in mm, that case. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll do mine real quick. Uh, uh, so uh, last week I had a journalist as my object, my colleague John Hudson. I'm going to have another journalist as an object this week. Uh, my colleague slash sometimes competitor, Scott Shane. Uh, who I'm sometimes confused for, believe it or not. Can we just call you collectively Scott Shane Harris? Scott Shane Harris, exactly. There, there may have been a press office that at one point sent an email to me, meaning it for Scott. Oh, that's uh, funny. And I did delete it. Uh, <laughs> but did you read it first? <laughs> no. And I don't remember what it was about. I remember who it was from. I don't remember what it was about. Um, but Scott announced on Twitter this week that he is retiring uh, from the New York Times. 
uh, and is going to go teach and do some more writing and there's more to stay tuned there. Uh, but I just wanted to give a big shout out to him. Um, he is someone who listeners of this podcast know his work very well. He has been a guest on the Lawfare podcast I think as well when he t- was talking about his excellent book, uh, Objective Troy. Um, and uh, Scott has just been behind some of the best – scoopiest, most important stories on the national security beat for a long, long time. There are a lot of us who have looked up to him and have used him as a model for the kind of reporter you want to be and the quality of journalism uh, that people expect on this beat. I wish him well. On top of that, he is a genuinely lovely human being who has been unfailingly nice and generous to me. Uh, and we will miss having him around, but I can't wait to see what he does next. So congratulations, Scott. And Best of luck on the next adventure. Happy trails. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ben, your object. Yeah, but before I do, I just want to uh, foot stomp two of those points. One is that Scott's book about the uh, Anwar Al-Alauki uh, case is uh, a really wonderful piece of national security journalism. And uh, and it's just a super impressive piece of work. And the second is the lovely person thing. He's a unstintingly generous and uh, a kind person who, among other things, has been very good to young journalists and sort of young people in, in the field. And I just think very highly of Scott. Yep, here, here. Um, my object um, is also related to National Security Girls Squad, actually, because a few months ago, I found myself on the roof of a hotel at a NatSec Girl Squad event, and I met a young woman named Lisa Kaplan, who uh, is a specialist on disinformation. And uh, some of you may have seen the New York Times article uh, recently about some of her work. But um, we got to chatting, and a few weeks later, she got in touch with me asking if she could brief me on some research that she was doing. Uh, and figure out how she might think about publishing it. And she came over and we uh, talked about this uh, rather incredible investigation she had done of a company in Cyprus that is run by Russians and that is generating gigantic social media traffic on YouTube and Facebook, many, many, many times the number of followers of, say, the New York Times or... Uh, It is actually the third most followed entertainment company on YouTube behind only Time Warner Media and Disney. That's just crazy. And it does little crafts videos, uh, little self-help videos, along with the occasional sprinkling of, you guessed it, Russian nationalism and pro-Trump political ads. And so today, Lawfare published an article on this subject by Lisa Kaplan entitled The Biggest Social Media Operation You've Never Heard Of is Run Out of Cyprus by Russians. And it is a incredibly well-researched and interesting piece. And it opens, what the heck is the soul publishing? I'm still honestly not sure. Here's what I do know. Measured in terms of views and subscribers, it had the third largest reach of any group of entertainment channels on YouTube in November, outranked only by Disney and Warner Media. 
It is run by Russian nationals and based in and managed from Cyprus with New York operations housed in a shared workspace in New York. It funds itself with ad revenues. And in 2018, it purchased a small suite of Facebook advertisements targeting U.S. citizens on political issues, and it made those purchases in rubles. Nothing shady about that. <laughs> Doesn't even raise a suspicion. Oh, everything old is new again. <laughs> this time, Russian disinformation back. This time, bigger than Disney. Wow. Uh, we'll check that piece out. That sounds incredible. Um, and that brings us incredibly to the end of this somber episode. Somber and solemn. Yeah, and all too sober, guys. Way too sober. Where the hell was the Not scotch? Not for long. <laughs> on, on today of all days, you'd think we would be, you know, having all right, a little... All right, we're heading out to the bar after we finish recording, medication. guys. Uh, but before we do that, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You cannot find Rational Security Golden Hammers at goldenhammerlawfarestore.hammer. No, I'm the only one who gets That's one. That's right. You don't just get to buy one. <laughs> But you can find other lots of cool stuff at what is it? Lawfare Tienda, Lawfare, <laughs> Lawfare Outpost. I'm not humoring this by participating. <laughs> it. Just so, put it on your list for the Santa. LawfareStore.com. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. So easy to remember, you would think. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Unless you're in Fargo, don't at me. Don't even at me, Fargo. Okay, you can at me, but you know I want to come and see Fargo actually in the spring. You can follow us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer today was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited by and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his new doo-wop group, The Peach Mints. <laughs> Cute. Right? Do they wear matching peach suits with like yeah. big shoulder pads? Exactly. Maybe with some green mint on them. Ew. Don't you think the group this week is capital letters and the punctuation marks? No. No. No, we'll have <laughs> more. That's <laughs> catchy. <laughs> this is why Shane does the band names, Ben. Stay in your lane, man. <laughs> yeah, Sophia, Ye- Sophia Yan is playing for my band, not for your band, let's be clear. <laughs> Though you are in Miami, so, you know, you, you're, you're not doing so bad. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will not talk to you next week. We'll be off for the Christmas holiday. Uh, happy holidays to all. Merry Christmas. And we will see you in the new year. Next year. My God, you guys. We'll see you on January 2nd, right? Yeah? Yeah. January 2nd. Dang. Ooh, wow. Thunderous for that. <laughs> happy New Year, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 